Good morning. And I do invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 12. And this morning we'll be reading verses 3 through 17. We had a very short passage last week. We only read the first couple of verses, but something got set up that we're going to carry on uh, into this passage, and it's the racing metaphor. We're going to continue with that, that he started of, of this, these witnesses, and, and witnesses uh, not so much that are watching us, but more importantly, witnesses we can see. We, in chapter 11, went through these uh, great uh, Old Testament saints and what they had done, and uh, it told us to uh, set aside our sin and every weight that's going to slow us down in this race and look to Jesus. We saw that in verse 2, this, this looking to Jesus. And so we're going to continue with the racing metaphor, if you will, and, and looking to Jesus, although we're going to take it into an area that's really not one of our favorite subjects, discipline. And that is where our author goes this morning. So let's read Hebrews chapter 12. I will begin at verse 3. Consider him, that's Jesus, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness." For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, and that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your word and your truths that you teach us. 
We confess right up front that discipline is not one of our favorite subjects. We don't like being disciplined. But in your word, you teach us what it is. And so we ask that as we look at this passage, your truth will speak to our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I do want to continue with the racing metaphor as our author does here. And I mentioned last week that we're all in this race, and I mentioned it as a spiritual race, if I can use that term. But uh, I want us to think about it as, right now, as a, a real race, uh, a road race. Like, we're all going to have to go out and run a race, and I'll let you pick the distance. Some of you real young, aggressive people might say, yeah, let's do a triathlon together, and Others are thinking, well, let's run about 20 feet, uh, you know. And so you come up with your own idea of how long this race is going to be, but make it a little longer than what you could do right now. You know, if you could run the length of the block, say, no, this race is going to be a mile, something that you have to get ready for. And here's the key, everyone has to finish the race. Now, if that's the case, this is going to require some discipline on our parts when you think about it. The first thing we're going to have to do is start exercising because this is going to be a race a little longer than what we can normally do. So we're going to have to get into the discipline of exercising. And then for some of us, we're going to have to probably eat a little better too. All right, we're going to have to hold off on maybe some donuts and bags of chips and other things. And we're going to have to eat a little better so that we can get in shape. And this is going to require some discipline as far as sleeping because I'm going to be at your front door with a megaphone getting you out of bed at 4.30 so that we can train together. So you're going to have to get to bed early that I can get you up and you're going to be out at 4.30 and exercising. And, and of course, this is going to require some discipline as far as your time goes, too. You know, you're going to have to structure your day a little differently so that you can get to bed earlier and, and you might miss some time in, in the morning as, as uh, I'm going to train us for at least four hours. Uh, but here, here's this, and, and if you've been in sports, you understand this idea of discipline and it really kind of encompasses almost your whole life depending on how competitive you want to be. And if you're learning a, a musical instrument or a foreign language or something like that, uh, many of these same ideas are tied into that. It, it's discipline. You have to discipline yourself with some time and, and some habits and some other things. And so as I mention this, I'm mentioning this because, uh, first of all, there, there's this dual idea of discipline. And I'm going to come back to this once in a while. There's this idea of training disciplining yourself and training yourself to do a certain thing. There's also the idea of discipline of reproving or punishing almost, if, if you want to put it in that terms. And self-discipline is bad enough. You know, I have to discipline myself to get up at 4.30 and get out in the road and run. That's, that's bad enough. It's even worse when you're being disciplined, when someone is punishing you or reproving you for something. But these two ideas often get mixed together. 
And so that's going to come up. But here's the deal. We need discipline. And in this race now that I'm going to go from this running race uh, to our spiritual race, we need discipline here too. Whether we like it or not, it is part of the Christian walk. And our author gives us this exhortation to stay strong. Stay strong in this discipline. And we see that in verses 3 and 4. And consider Jesus in verse 3. Though he's perfect, Jesus was perfect. Now he endured uh, from sinners this hostility that he talks about. And this is more than the cross. In verse 2, he talked about the cross. He said, look to Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Here he's got a little bit of, a, a little different idea. Consider Jesus, consider him, who endured from sinners such hostility. It's this idea of everything he endured even before the cross. And we mentioned that a little bit, if you noticed, in the Heidelberg Catechism as we were reading that uh, today, even before the cross. And if you think about the life of Jesus, he faced almost constant hostility from the Jewish leaders especially, but from the Jewish people in general. There were times where he had great crowds around him of thousands of people, but they would eventually drift away. And there were times where they all kind of walked away and Jesus looked at the 12 who were with him and said, well, are you guys going to leave me too? And in the end, of course, they all turned on him. But Jesus, he faced constant hostility all through his life. When he healed people, he was criticized. He healed on the wrong day. He healed the wrong people. He said the wrong thing when he healed this person. It was, all the time. They didn't like the people that Jesus was associating with. Tax collectors, sinners, these women with tarnished reputations, these simple fishermen. They didn't like his friends. They were outraged when Jesus would make himself equal with God. He called himself God. And they, would act, they tried to kill him a few times before they actually did because of, of what he was saying about himself being equal with the Father. They were angry when his teaching defied what the Pharisees were teaching. The Pharisees would come up with this crazy stuff and Jesus said, no, you're missing the point. Here's what is meant when Moses wrote this. And, and they were all upset about that. And so all of this is to say the world around Jesus was hostile to his ideas. Pretty much every idea he had. It was hostile to everything he did and the world around him didn't like the things of God. And to the original readers, and I will put us in this as well, to us reading right now, we know what it's like to live in a world that has ideas that are hostile to the word of God. This is something we can all relate to. And so Jesus, he endured this from sinners. And in, in terms of, of enduring this hostility from sinners, he went all the way to the point of, of shedding blood. The readers of, the original readers of Hebrews hadn't gone that far. And frankly, we're not threatened with that right now. 
us right here in the United States. There are many around the world who are threatened with that. But right where we are right now, we're not threatened with this. Now, the writer of Hebrews had mentioned back in Hebrews chapter 10 that the readers had endured some ridicule. Some were even imprisoned. There's uh, property that was plundered. And even we don't endure that for the most part because of our Christian faith. But like them, we do uh, endure these ideas that are hostile to the word of God. And we deal with that and we struggle with our own sin as well. It's as though we have sin without and sin within. And so we need discipline as much as we'd rather not want discipline. We need it. And again, I go back to this dual understanding of discipline, the idea of training, strengthening ourselves. If you want to use one of those cliches that you probably heard in a gym and didn't like, the no pain, no gain thing, you know, that, that's, we'll train ourselves. Or, or the one that I really like to mock. There's one, uh, I read it on a t-shirt first, and you know all great things are written on a t-shirt. Um, uh, but it was this phrase, uh, pain is weakness leaving the body, which never made sense to me. You know, I, I hit my thumb with a hammer, and uh, yeah, that's, that's weakness leaving my body right there. Yeah? I'll hit the other thumb, and I'll have weakness leaving in stereo. You know, it, it makes no sense. But you, you know the, the idea behind it. No pain, no gain. Uh, strengthening ourselves. There's also uh, the idea of punishment reproof. Learn from this. Don't do this again. Think about what you've done. That type of discipline. And the two ideas overlap, as I mentioned. And, and sometimes you can tell there's one more than the other, but, but they're, they're two sides of the same coin, if you want to put it that way. They're, they're closely connected. So we need this proper understanding of discipline, and, and right away it's counterintuitive. When we read verses 5 and 6, we understand that discipline should actually comfort us. We should be happy, if you will, that we're being disciplined. And our author, in verses 5 and 6, he's, he's quoting from Proverbs chapter 3. My son, and, and by the way, he's, he's writing in the masculine as they usually did, but when I say son, it's sons and daughters and fathers and mothers. We'll, we'll put it that way. But my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And you see the word reproved, in, in my translation, reproved and chastises, and in between those two words is that word, love. He reproves us, chastises us. But in the middle of that is love. And once again, if I can throw out some other cliches that you probably uh, rolled your eyes at at some point in your life. Uh, when a parent or a teacher or someone would say, I'm doing this because this is for your own good. Remember that, and usually there's a finger in that. You know, this is for your own good. Or else the one that you probably really hated. This hurts me more than it hurts you. And you're like, no, I'm the one getting spanked. I think this hurts me a little more than it hurts you. Uh, now, thankfully, my parents never said that one to me because uh, 
I don't know. <laughs> but you, you've heard those before. And it's funny how the, the different perspective, uh, or how your perspective changes uh, when you're the child being reproved as opposed to the parent. Because as a child, that's what you think. This does not hurt you more than it hurts me. I'm the one suffering here. What are you talking about? But when you're a parent and you are the one disciplining, then you come to realize, you know, disciplining is really no fun. And it's a hassle. And it kind of gets in the way of what you really want to be doing. And a lot of times when you discipline a child, well, you're kind of involved in it somehow. Okay, he can't have ice cream, so now either I don't have ice cream or I eat it in front of him. And that's just mean. Yeah, it, 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 we wonder sometimes, why don't parents discipline their children anymore? It's a hassle, that's why. And I think that question's been asked down through history, but it's, it's, not, it's not a pleasant thing to do. But praise God, he's willing to go to that hassle and actually discipline us. Discipline is a loving trait of God, and this is hard for us to understand sometimes because we feel like we're the ones hurting here. How can this be loving? Uh, John Chrysostom, one of the early church fathers, uh, he died in the early 400s, actually, but he wrote about people wondering about this idea of God loving us and yet things are hurting. And Chrysostom writes, it is those very things in which they suppose they have been deserted by God that should make them confident that they have not been deserted. And later on, Chrysostom would write, of necessity, every righteous person must pass through afflictions. Every righteous person must pass through afflictions. In verse 8, you'll notice, all have participated. Our author uh, uses that. Peter uh, in 1 Peter chapter 4, he writes, Beloved, do, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. And then there we get an element of testing. As though something strange were happening to you. Peter said, don't, don't be surprised when bad things come, when things get hard, when this happens. Don't be surprised. It's not strange. It's happened to people down through history. And then in verse 7, our author says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. And that's how my translation writes it. But I like the NET Bible and their uh, rendering of that verse or that phrase is this, endure your suffering as discipline. Endure your suffering as discipline. Or their alternate translation would be, or in order to become disciplined. And it kind of makes you ask this question, well, is everything that's bad happening, uh, whether to me or around me, is it all discipline? Is there a reason for all of this? And the writer of Hebrews is basically saying, think of it that way. Yeah, consider it all discipline, all of this stuff that is happening, that there is a reason. 
If I can go back to our athletic metaphor again, there's fewer things more frustrating to an athlete than when you're at practice and a coach is making you run or something and you get this idea in your head, you know what? The coach is only making us run because he ran out of other things to do. He's just wasting our time right now because he doesn't know what to do, so he's making us run. There's no purpose to this. You hate that feeling. So we have to remember when these bad things happen, there is a reason behind this. God isn't like that coach who's just wasting time. There's a purpose in all of this. And the writer, he works from the lesser to the greater as he uh, makes this argument in verses uh, 7 through 11. He starts with earthly fathers, and I'll put earthly mothers in there. He, he sticks with fathers because then he talks about the heavenly father. But for us parents, uh, we discipline for just a short amount of time, really, a few years, and then you know, maybe a little bit later on as they grow older, but it kind of changes then. But just really a, a short amount of time in terms of eternity especially. And we're fallible. You know, we make mistakes. I think fathers more than mothers, perhaps. But we make mistakes and we'll say the wrong thing at the wrong time. Or maybe uh, we didn't know the whole story or, or the, the, you know, the timing was off. Something that We don't always know what's best. We, we do the best we can. And still, as it says in verse 9, still we respect uh, our fathers and mothers who, who discipline us. But compared to the heavenly father, he's infallible. He does know everything, including our hearts. You see that in verse 9. He's the father of spirits. His Holy Spirit works in us, knows our hearts. And he knows perfectly what is for our good in verse 10 as opposed to the parent who will look and say, this is for your own good, and you want to say, are you sure this is for my good? With God, we know with great confidence, yeah, this is for our own good. And we see what God wants in us, or for us, if I can put it that way. In verse 10, that we may share in his holiness that we may share in his holiness. And then jump ahead to verse 14 and look at that phrase, holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See, there's, there's what God wants for us. And this causes us to see discipline and bad things, if you will, quite differently, actually. The problem is found in verse 11. When our writer writes, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful, of, uh, the, the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. But, but it seems painful. C.S. Lewis wrote a great book. He wrote a number of great books, uh, one of them being The Problem of Pain. And in that book, Lewis writes this, when we want to be something other than the thing God wants us to be, we must be wanting what, in fact, will not make us happy. 
We have to think about that for just a second. But God wants us to be holy. He wants us to share in his holiness so that we can see him. When we want something other than that, then ultimately we want something that's not going to make us happy. And later on, Lewis would write, whether we like it or not, God intends to give us what we need, not what we now think we want. And there is a big difference in there. What we need as opposed to what we think right now that we want. And remember, discipline isn't always the result of a specific sin. And we have examples of this in the Bible. In fact, uh, our Wednesday morning Bible studies, we've been looking at Job. And that was the issue with Job. He, all this bad stuff, unimaginably bad stuff, was happening to Job. And he was saying, but I haven't done anything wrong. He wasn't claiming to be sinless, but he was saying, look, what have I done? And all of his friends came at him and said, just repent, Job. You're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. And he's like, no. And we're told early on in Job that that wasn't the reason why these things were happening to Job. He's like, I don't get it. It's just happening. Uh, there was a blind man in, in John chapter 9. Jesus healed this blind man. He'd been blind since birth. And, and they asked Jesus, they said, okay, this guy who was blind all these years, was it because he sinned or because his parents sinned? And Jesus said, neither. It had nothing to do with that. Now, there are examples uh, in the Bible, and in plenty of them, of, of retribution because of sin. Jonah is a great example God told Jonah, go to Nineveh, and Jonah said, okay, I'm going to run the other way. And then he ran the other way, and then there's a big storm, and he's thrown in the ocean, and a fish eats him. And uh, Okay, that was a specific sin. Uh, Israel in the wilderness, who kept wandering around 40 years uh, because of sin. So there are those examples, but it's not always the case that bad things happen because you specifically have done a specific sin, but it should at least make us, when things happen, at least reflect a little bit. And think of who God is and who we are. Is, is my faith really in God? And maybe in that you'll notice things. Maybe you will say, you know what, I have not been praying the way I should be. Or I have not been reading my Bible as I should be. I have lost some of my zeal. I have lost something there. Maybe that does show itself, but maybe not. Maybe you say, no, I've been doing the, the same thing, but at least it makes you reflect and think on God. But then we ask the question, well, why, why pain? If I haven't really done anything wrong, why do I have to be disciplined by things that seem painful? And again, C.S. Lewis, uh, from his book, The Problem of Pain, pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And I think we can all agree right now, we live in a pretty deaf world. And there's a megaphone shouting at us right now. But that's why there's pain. 
Think of, and I know a lot of you are like me, uh, you'll go to your yearly physical, but other than that, you're not going to go to the doctor unless that pain is so intense that you have to go to the doctor. Otherwise, you avoid that for as long as you can. A runner doesn't get any faster sitting in an easy chair eating bags of chips and all day, every day. And a sinner really doesn't get stronger by living the easy life all the time. A Christian doesn't get stronger by living the easy life all the time. And yet in verse 11, we see the discipline, it will yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And there's that training aspect again. Those who have been trained by it. You know, as I mentioned earlier, sometimes uh, you don't know when is this reproof and when is it just simply I'm being built up. I'm being trained for something that's coming. And if you watch, uh, I've watched a lot of uh, practices, football, basketball, baseball, uh, and, and track, and, and I've participated in a lot. And a lot of times, especially if you're watching, you don't know if a team is being punished or trained. They're running a lot. Well, is that part of their training program, or did they just really do something wrong and the coach is angry? It's, it's hard to tell sometimes when you're on the outside looking in and you don't have all the inside information, and we have to recognize a lot of times that's how God works. Sometimes it's hard to see. Am I being punished for this, or is this just something to build me up and to reflect my, my faith that I can be stronger in God. And, and that's why, at the very least, it causes us to reflect when this discipline, when these hard things come along. But even if we don't understand completely, what matters is responding correctly. And we see that in verses 12 through 15. And in short, the author is saying, don't stop. You know, he laid out this whole thing about discipline. Then in verse 12, he says, therefore, therefore, here's your response. And a lot of this comes from Isaiah 35. There's some words and ideas from Isaiah 35 and also some of the Proverbs in here. But, uh, but to, this is a, still a continuation of the, the running or the athletic metaphor. Don't stop. Strengthen yourself. You know, in, back in Hebrews 10, the writer had commanded the readers, you were doing so well. And, and here he's saying, don't quit. Don't be rash. Strengthen yourselves and, and keep that path straight. And don't make matters worse. You see that in verses 12 and, and 13 especially. Don't make matters worse. And there's this mutual encouragement idea in here. We're running this together Remember, this is a race. We're all running this together. In verse 14, he says, Strive for peace and see that no root of bitterness springs up. That's in verse 15, that root of, of bitterness. And actually, he's taking that from Deuteronomy. And when you go back to Deuteronomy and look at it, uh, what you're seeing is it's the bad seed. Don't be the bad seed. Don't be that one that's going to complain and point fingers and put each other down and, and, uh, and, and cause all kinds of trouble with your bad ideas, bad accusations. And he has to say this because in hardship, that's when the bad seed, if you will, can do a lot of damage. 
And when things are bad, it doesn't take long for that, that bad seed to really make a mess of everything. And then you've gone from bad to worse. Paul picks up the idea in 1 Corinthians 5. He writes, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And that's what our writer is basically saying in verse uh, 15. Many uh, become defiled by this bad, bad seed, this root of bitterness. And you also notice in there a little bit how we're responsible in a way for each other in all of this. In verse 15, and I know I'm kind of jumping around a little bit, but at the beginning of verse 15, see that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. We're, we're responsible, in a way, for each other. Let's help us as we are disciplined. Let's help us in our training. Strive, in verse 14 again, strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The goal of salvation is to see the Lord. In fact, in Revelation 22, at the end of all of this, it's kind of a, a big deal in Revelation 22, verse 4, uh, it talks about the saints going to heaven and they will see his face. That's what God wants for us and what we should want for each other as we're disciplined basically together and training in this together. R.C. Sproul writes, to sustain each other's faith, we must encourage the weak, but also oppose apostates who may influence others. We've got to get the, the root of bitterness away from us, the bad seed and encourage and strengthen each other, keeping each other on that straight path, strengthening one another, showing the grace of God that others may obtain that as well. And then very quickly, he closes this passage with a bad example, actually. He's given us so many good examples of faith. In chapter 11, now we get Esau, who is a bad example, or as a phrase my dad likes to use, he's a good example of a bad example. And that's exactly what Esau is because he fits so perfectly in the world today. It talks about the, uh, the sexual immorality, which is most likely a reference to his marriages. He married uh, some women he shouldn't have, and, and he knew that. Uh, but he wanted to, and then he ended up marrying different women. And, and so he talks about that, but also uh, this idea of he sold his birthright for a single meal. And to understand this, you, have to, uh, you would have to go back to Genesis 25, where Esau is hungry, and he, Jacob is making some stew, and Esau says, I want your stew, and, and Jacob says, well, sell me your birthright. And so he does, for a single meal. He gives up his birthright, which comes with the blessing. And then in Genesis 27, uh, when Isaac is blessing his sons, Jacob gets the good blessing. Now, there was some trickery and, and deceit involved, involved in that, but Esau didn't get the blessing. And the author's point is this, Esau gave up something of lasting value, and he gave it up pretty flippantly for a temporary pleasure. 
And that's what Esau was. That's what our world is. We'll give up things of lasting value for a temporary pleasure in a heartbeat without even thinking about it. And then later on, when he wanted it, he realized he gave it up and he couldn't get it back. The blessing was gone. The blessing was Jacob's. It's not that forgiveness and restoration were impossible, but he never understood the gravity of what he had done. He never came to true repentance. If he had come to true repentance, he wouldn't have been trying to kill his brother for a number of years. He, he mourned, he cried, but he was crying for what he lost. He wasn't crying about his actions. He wasn't really repentant. He was still selfish, what he had lost. He wanted my way now. I want this and I want it now. And that's basically our world today. And we're willing to give up what we really need and what God wants for us to be with him and to see him. But praise God that he is willing to discipline us that we can get there. That he loves us enough to go to the hassle of saving us. And what a hassle God went to to save us. Christ dying on a cross that we can be his sons and daughters and that we can see the loving face of God at the end of this all. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love. And as much as it pains us sometimes, we thank you for your discipline. Your discipline that really is in our best interest. We think we know what we want. You truly know what our desire is. And you stopped at nothing to bring us there, to bring us to you. We look forward to that day when we will live perfectly in your presence. And we ask that as we go through this world, continuing to be disciplined and continuing to have to strengthen ourselves and, and help in strengthening each other, that you will keep our path straight, that you will help us lift our drooping hands and heal our weak knees, that we can walk boldly in your ways. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you will stand, we will together sing the doxology. Amen.